Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. This week I had the pleasure of being joined by Marcus Frampton, who is the Chief Investment Officer of the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is Alaska's sovereign wealth fund. Marcus is also the author of the Microcap Letter, which strives to uncover value in the often overlooked and underfollowed corners of the financial markets. He does this with an adventuresome and audacious spirit inspired by the mariners of yesterday. Marcus has done many interviews covering how he and his team allocate capital at the Alaska Permanent Fund, so if you want to find out more information regarding that, I suggest you search for his name online and you'll be able to find those interviews. For this episode, we are going to focus solely on his personal investing style and strategy. Marcus also talks about two obscure stocks he has invested in that could have much more upside potential. This was a great episode and I think you'll really enjoy it. Before we start, make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to their list. Okay, let's jump into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Marcus. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure, John. Thanks for inviting me on. Can you provide a brief overview of your background? Sure. So, you know, some of the guests you've had on um, manage money professionally, and that's what you talk to them about. And then I think some others, they're talking about their personal account, um, and maybe they do something else professionally. And I guess I'm sort of both. I'm a professional investor. I uh, am the chief investment officer of the Alaska Permanent Fund. So that's the sovereign wealth fund for Alaska. And then in my personal account, which is what we're going to talk about, I am fairly passionate about uh, investing in over-the-counter stocks and microcap stocks. So I started my career in 2001 at Lehman, and I was in the investment banking group of Lehman. And actually, the group I was in covered paper and forest products companies. And that's kind of influenced my investing later uh, in that that's kind of an industry that's flat or in decline. And so um, I think my whole style would be very different if I was in the tech investment banking group. But I I worked at Lehman for uh, about four years. And then I worked at a small private equity fund in California for a few years. And then coming out of the financial crisis, I had this opportunity up in Alaska, which seemed like a big adventure at the time. But, you know, I moved up there around 2012. And I've, that's now the longest job I've had. And I, and I love it up here. So I've done a few different things, but uh, Alaska has been home for the last 10 years or so. It must be quite a change for you from running um, the Alaska Permanent Fund, where you're managing such a big amount of money to then kind of delving deep into these micro caps. You find it quite refreshing as well. I, I absolutely do. I mean, it just, you know, uh, the the permanent fund's $80 billion now, and we've got a mix of external managers and internal management. And it just really strikes me what an efficient market things are when you're in that you know size bracket. And I think uh, a lot of individual investors don't really understand the, the advantage they have in terms of being able to invest smaller amounts of money and less liquid and smaller cap companies. And so for me, it's, it is almost an entirely different world looking at a microcap stock versus, you know, what we trade at the permanent fund. And yeah, it is very refreshing. So I'd like to focus a bit more on your, your personal 
investing in in the microcap space. What kind of um, businesses do you look for? Is there any sort of um, specific industries you focus on or maybe from a, a quantitative perspective? Yeah, so I generally am finding ideas through stock screens and I do some of the standard you know, valuation-based stock screens, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA, price book, things like that. But I usually cut it off at 100 million market cap. And then when I'm narrowing it down, looking in the realm of cheap, small companies, I'm looking for mature businesses and ones that are underfollowed. And I'm trying to avoid situations where something dramatic has to change in the business. Like if you're betting on double-digit annual growth rates for the next five years annually, or a turnaround where the company's going from losing money to making money. Those I'm avoiding, and I'm trying to find kind of mature businesses that are managed by people who are, and this is a qualitative analysis, but who are trying to maximize shareholder value, trying to return capital through share buybacks, being smart about capital allocation, et cetera. So it really is just small companies that are very inexpensive where management seems to be doing the right thing by shareholders is kind of where I focus. And then the icing on the cake for me is if I can find situations that have, you know, limited liquidity. I, I like situations that trade at, at wide bid asks and I like trading around positions and being in a position where with a little bit of work, I feel like I'm as informed as anyone in the stock. And therefore if the stock's selling off one day, I'm stepping in and providing liquidity. And I just wouldn't be able to get that comfortable with a bigger company followed by many analysts and portfolio managers that I am that I can step into a sell-off because I know as much as anyone else following the stock, whereas I can do that with microcaps, I believe. And how much time do you normally spend on researching each stock? Yeah, before something becomes a meaningful position, so call it 5% of my personal account, I'm usually spending, you know, call it four or five weeks. I usually try to make some effort to reach out to management, read all the financials, learn a little bit about the industry. Um, a lot of times I'll, I'll buy a very small position without that type of work, but I feel like I can, in a month, get to the point where I'm just about as knowledgeable as anyone trading the stock. Okay, and your hunting ground is mainly North America, is that right? The US and uh, Canada, or, or do That's you look right. internationally as well? No, I just, I've, I've found that there's enough to keep me busy in the US and Canada, so I haven't uh, branched out beyond that. Can you talk through maybe two of those stocks that you're very bullish on for the long term, and what was your thesis for investing? So the first one I'll talk about is an Alaskan-based company. So it's Alaska Power and Telephone. And one of the things I think is really cool about Alaska Power is it's kind of an underfollowed stock among a sector of underfollowed over-the-counter stocks. And so by, by that, I mean rural telecom in the U.S. has gotten some attention from value investors and people that focus on over-the-counter. And the two main companies there are Nuvera and LICT. And um, those are great companies, and they're both benefiting from some of the same things that benefit Alaska Power and Telephone, but they just trade at higher multiples because they're more broadly followed. So, so Nuvera and LICT both 
uh, traded 6.2 times EBITDA and 7.5 times respectively. Um, Alaska Power and Telephone, in contrast, trades at 5.3 times. So it's got a discount there. And then separately, Alaska Power and Telephone has something that Nuvera and LICT don't have, and that's that they don't just do telecom. They also do uh, regulated utilities. And so in rural Alaska, Alaska Power and Telephone is like an essential service provider in lots of cities across the state. They're supported by a lot of government help in the U.S. The telecom industry has been the recipient of subsidies, and everyone expects that to continue. And the thing I like about Alaska Power and Telephone is it's as good or better a business than these other comps, but it just trades cheaper. And then it also has some growth potential that I think is underappreciated. So they've got, um, and a lot of the the capital investment that these types of companies do get grant subsidies. Um, so right now they're doing a big subsea fiber broadband project in Southeast Alaska. Like two thirds of the cost is provided by federal subsidy because they want to incentivize broadband build out. So they've got this great kind of CapEx profile where they get subsidy to build things out. They're completely underfollowed. The market cap's 85 million and they trade cheaper to these other stocks that that I think are more commonly followed among value investors. What would cause you to sell? It would be valuation. So, you know, a theme that I, I like to pick up on too is situations where you can go to shareholder meetings and and get a that qualitative feel for management that I described, but you also pick up little tidbits. So, for example, and this I'll tie back to valuation in a second. Alaska Power and Telephone had their annual shareholders meeting last month, and they did it on Zoom, so anyone could dial in. And the company, because it has an ESOP, has a lot of um, employee ownership. So, retiring employees are selling back to the ESOP at an appraised value, which doesn't reflect the the trading price, it's like a, an appraisal they do. And then current shareholders can defer part of their income into the ESOP. And so like at the last shareholder meeting, they presented the new ESOP valuation and it was $74, which compares to $70 trading price on the stock. But one of the interesting things they talked about was that appraisal is based off of a five-year DCF. And most of the cash flows from the new subsea fiber project are expected to come after year five. It's going to take several years to build out to get going. So, you know, you've got a third party appraisal at north of the current stock price. And then that third party appraisal doesn't include a big new project. So the long way of answering your question, if all of a sudden the stock was at 90 or 100, I might lighten up. But right now it feels pretty inexpensive. Thanks, Marcus, for sharing that. And how about your second company? Yeah, so the second um, company is FP Newspapers. So it trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, And this one was interesting to me because of a complicated corporate structure that makes it so that you can't really, it doesn't show up on screens. So probably about half my ideas I get through screening, um, which Alaska Power and Telephone was one. This one, um, another investor shared with me um, because it doesn't show up on screens. So FP Newspapers owns, its only asset is the 
is securities that have the rights to 49% of the cash flow of a company called FP Canadian Newspapers. And FP Canadian Newspapers is not publicly traded, um, but it has public financials. Um, And its main asset is the daily newspaper in Winnipeg. So this, like the paper industry, is a declining industry, but management has just magnificently managed the decline. And, you know, and so they had five years ago, the company had about 40 million of debt and it was paying a fairly high dividend. And that dividend flowed through to FP newspapers, the security that's publicly traded, and people owned it because they liked the yield. So five years ago, the company decided because of where the newspaper industry was going to discontinue the dividend and to pay down cash or pay down debt with their cash flow. In that five-year period of time, the ultimate company, FP Canadian Newspapers, that FP Newspapers owns 49% of, has basically paid down its entire debt load. And where you look at the company today, FP Newspapers, the stock I'm referring to that's on Toronto, has about an $8.5 million market cap. So the implied total value of FP Canadian newspapers is about 19 million. And that compares to 8 million of EBITDA. And it looks like the company's right at the point where it's going to reinstate their dividend because they've paid off all their debt. And in fact, this company also had a shareholder meeting in the last month where management said that they would like to start paying a dividend again. And so when you look at the cash flow versus the market cap, we could be looking at 20, 30% dividend yield pretty easily. So this is the type of company that's just completely unfollowed because it's a sub 10 million market cap and then has just hit this critical inflection point where they've paid off all their debt and could have some very healthy dividends going forward. Yeah, that's a fantastic dividend if it comes through. What about growth as well? Have they mentioned much opportunities for for growth? So the business is in decline, and how that decline plays out remains to be seen. So the, the interesting thing is if you look at their circulation, it's been pretty much flat, but advertising revenues are declining fairly steadily. You know, so in that five year period I just described, their EBITDA has gone from fifteen to eight. And I'd expect it to keep going down. It's just management's done a very good job of controlling the decline. You know, I think that if you model out the decline rate of their EBITDA and the dividends that they could pay, it's actually an easier exercise than taking a company that trades at 10 or 20 times revenue and trying to model out the growth. So I get attracted to situations like this because I think it's a little bit easier to get your arms around how things play out. Also importantly for FP, they own their real estate. So most of the publicly traded newspaper stocks have sold their real estate a long time ago. Um, In the case of FP, they have a primary facility in Winnipeg that they invested over, you know, over 10 years ago, tens of millions of dollars into and probably today is worth somewhere around the market cap, just as commodity industrial land. So I think that they're going to pay a very healthy dividend for 5, 10, 15 years. And then at some point, if they're no longer able to operate a profitable newspaper, 
they've got a nice piece of real estate there that could get monetized. Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting situation. I've come across so many um, newspaper-based companies over the last 10 years that, like you say, obviously are in, in decline, and many of them rejig their business model to focus on maybe become more data and analytics or oh, right. making income yeah. through, the, say, affiliate marketing. is there to make a big media, new media investment and kind of bet the company on it. And I like it that these guys have just focused on paying down debt and now we're going to focus on paying a dividend and not, you know, make a big bet on something out in the future. Yeah. Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, really interesting um, situation. That's FP and that's listed on... Let me see, Toronto. Uh, yeah, Toronto. Okay. I didn't put this uh, question to you beforehand, but is there any kind of person that you follow or maybe a mentor you've had in the past or even a book you've read that you feel has made you a better investor? Well, there's so many out there. And, and I think that, you know, the Jack Schwager Market Wizards books make such a good impression on almost everyone new to investing who reads them in terms of just understanding the breadth of ways that people can make money in the markets and kind of being an inspirational read as opposed to, you know, securities analysis, which I think is fantastic, but is a long slog for someone, you know, new to investing. I just read um, Ed Thorpe's book, Man for All Markets, and it's fantastic. I mean, that's another must read, I think, in my opinion. So where can listeners go to find out more information about you? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter, so it's at Marcus Frampton, and I really enjoy interacting with people on Twitter. And then I've got a uh, blog where I write up stock ideas, and that's uh, microcapletter.com. I'd fully recommend listeners go and sign up to your letter. So I read uh, every new edition, and it's um, yeah, it's so well laid out in design, and the, your writing is very good as well, very easy to read. Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's fantastic, Marcus. Thanks so much for your time to come on the podcast. Hopefully we can get you back on later in the year or perhaps next year. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thanks, John.